This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Universities, hospitals, and research centers conduct a lot of research that generates groundbreaking inventions that not only save lives, but improve the way we live, work, and play on a daily basis. Technology transfer plays a central role in bringing these ideas from the lab to the market. Technology transfer in the university context has emerged as a significant policy issue, with governments seeking to maximize the benefits of public investment in research at Canadian universities. For example, the Ford government in Ontario recently launched an expert panel on intellectual property that squarely focused on the issue. A government release stated that the panel, quote, will deliver a report on how Ontario can maximize commercialization opportunities for the post-secondary sector and its partners. Included in the expert panel report will be an action plan for a provincial intellectual property framework. But what if maximizing commercialization opportunities does not mean prioritizing patents? This week's guest on the podcast, Professor Richard Gold from McGill University's Faculty of Law, argues that universities should get out of the patenting game. He joins me to discuss the failure of patent-first strategies within universities and why open science may offer a better path for commercialization success. Richard, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you, Michael, for inviting me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you've come on. The The question of commercialization of intellectual property within the university environment has been a big policy issue for a long time. And, and as you know better than just about anybody, many have advocated for increased commercialization, more intellectual property, especially on the patent side. And, and universities are increasingly pressured to justify public investments in research through metrics like spin-offs, patents, and other intellectual property. And this issue is getting even renewed focus in Ontario with the creation of an expert panel on IP and a lot of talk about maximizing commercialization. So that's where much of the, the discussion seems to be, at least in the media and amongst some of the politicians and policymakers. But you've written that universities should be consider getting out of the patent business. And so I wanted to, to start there. Um, let's talk about universities' patents and the approach that we've seen for a long time. You think the focus on patents and commercialization has been the wrong approach. Why is that? Well, I think it was a really good idea 40 years ago. It said, look, we're producing a lot of knowledge at the universities. The government is putting a lot of money into research. We want to translate this into economic growth. We want to have companies come out of Canada and become world leaders. We're now 40 years later, and I challenge you to name a Canadian company that has a large-scale market that came out of a university. Uh, We've had a few. They've all either been sold or gone under. Um, When we think about BlackBerry, it was not a spin-off out of a university. So we've had 40 years of failure. It was a good idea. It just doesn't work. And it's time now to think about 
why it doesn't work, what's missing. And we can look to the United States where this idea originated and we see, you know, it's not working even particularly well there. Uh, in the U.S., about 84% of universities lose money on tech transfer, and there are about 15, 16 universities that have generated real companies. It's not like this idea hasn't done anything, but it, it hasn't done really well, and so we should be looking at alternatives that will do better. And I think uh, today with our communication systems, our deep, deep interlinking, uh, both through technology, through networks that university professors have created. I mean, look at scientific publications. There are often many, many people on the team from different institutions. It's time to look at a different model. And uh, that model, in my view, uh, at least one part of that model means getting out of the patent business. We've done a poor job at it. Let's try something different. Okay, and I, I want to get to what some of those alternatives could be in a moment. But you mentioned that uh, the data, at least in the United States, suggests that the vast majority of universities that have pursued this approach, and, and as you know, this has been, been something that universities, both in Canada and, and the United States and elsewhere, have faced as a real pressure point, uh, have lost money on this. So what's the cost associated with pursuing the essentially patent-first commercialization model uh, from a Canadian university perspective? So there's a direct cost, which is actually running these offices. Uh, and what we've seen over the last uh, 20 years or so is increasing expenditures going into professionals hired by the university, frankly, often with very little private sector experience. Uh, because they can make a lot more money in the private sector, so it's hard to attract people. So we've seen an increase in expenditures going to these individuals, um, and their output hasn't gone up. What we see is uh, redundant patent applications. So in the first part of you know the, the 2000s, the number of patent applications went up, but the actual patents granted did not. So we were wasting a lot of direct expenditure on these individuals plus playing the patent game. There's also been a significant increase in litigation, particularly in the United States. So I don't know if you've been following the debates over patents over the CRISPR technology, this breakthrough technology to edit DNA. Judges at the United States Patent and Trademark Office in Alexandria, Virginia, ruled today that the technology belongs to the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, not the University of California, Berkeley. CRISPR's promise is huge. The technology could potentially change humanity's genetic code, as well as produce new types of treatments and even cure diseases. And because it's such a huge breakthrough, it's estimated to be worth billions, even trillions of dollars that has pitted two universities against each other fighting over who gets the patent. It's going to cost, you know, $100 million plus to settle this. In the meantime, nobody knows who has the right patents, who doesn't. So there's a cost to industry about the uncertainty. There's a cost of defending these patents. But that doesn't include what I think is the major cost, which is the cost that we don't account for. And that is the time of the researchers spent on filing patent applications because they must be involved and that takes up time and nobody knows what that's like but even more significantly it gets in the way of setting up 
agreements with the private sector because as soon as the university says, look, if I'm taking an IP position here, I want IP, then of course the firm that they're dealing with is going to say, well, hold on, we're putting money in, we want our IP. And so we see extended contract negotiations, even on very simple agreements like material transfer agreements where the university transfers a you know, cell or DNA sample or molecule to the private sector. And it can take six months. We've often seen it go much longer. And so if you take into account all those costs of just slowing down the research and the, the, the person power it takes to negotiate those agreements, it's extreme. But even beyond that, it means a delay in research. It means that a research project can't start as soon as uh, it ought to. So the science is there, the scientists are ready to go, but they have to wait for the agreement to be signed. And so we have a delay of six months, a year, sometimes more, to even get one partner involved. And imagine, as we see today more and more often, multiple partners needed, each person bringing, each person, each firm bringing their own skills, whether it be AI, whether it be a molecule, whether it be some other type of, uh, of knowledge, each one needs to negotiate with the university. So we may be pushing research back by year, two years. That means people are suffering if, because we're not uh, even starting the research that may result in a drug. And uh, other people aren't benefiting from that knowledge because we know once I publish, someone else is going to be able to use it. So we're delaying the initial start of the research, which has a follow-on effect, and we have no idea how much that costs. Okay, so I, 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 there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, by the sounds of it, you've got on the one hand the costs that the universities themselves incur because the commercialization strategy invariably, invariably involves the creation of tech, what are called tech transfer offices within the universities, these individuals who are supposed to specialize in taking the research, finding private sector partners, negotiating those deals, and in a sense, pursuing that commercialization strategy, your data suggests that isn't working very well. It's expensive to do. They're not great necessarily at what they do with many more patent applications, but not necessarily more patents actually granted. And then that process itself leads to the litigation that you described, leads to delays on the research side, and takes researchers out of doing what they do best, which is conducting research. That's exactly right. So the initial instinct, I think, was right. Let's help the private sector. And there's always been historically links between universities and the private sector. In fact, 100 and some years ago, most of the research was funded by uh, the private sector. But since the 1950s, the government has taken over the major role of funding. And we've been trying to figure out how do we breach this gap, especially since technology is becoming more complicated and we need bigger teams. So it's a good instinct but it simply doesn't work. The costs are way too high. That's interesting. I, I know that this goes back now decades. You mentioned that this really got started in the United States with the Bayh-Dole Act, I believe, back in 1980, which was sort of yeah. that, that first real attempt. Did we have something or do we have something similar in Canada, at least at a, either a legislative or even a policy level that was designed to pursue this kind of commercialization approach? Yes, and, and going back to 1980, the Bayh-Dole Act was trying to solve two problems. One is this commercialization gap, but the other was 
in the U.S. there was a rule that if the government funded your research, they had a veto over anything you did with it. So a university that had an industry partner could not transfer the knowledge to the university without going through a Byzantine process of getting permission from the federal government. Baidul got rid of that and, and, rest, uh, and put control over these decisions at the university. In Canada, we never had that situation. The granting councils never imposed an intellectual property policy. And so universities were always free to engage with firms as they wanted. So we never needed a Baidol. We don't have a Baidol. Uh, but what we have had is some policy. And one of those, and I'll just give one example, is the federal government's creation of the Canada Research Chair Program. So this is a program to fund our, our best researchers from across disciplines. And the government demanded in return for funding these chairs that the universities triple their commercialization output. And so it was embedded into the agreement between the federal government and the universities that they would do more commercialization, by which was understood at the time, more patenting and more licensing. So we've had it embedded in pieces of, of policy like that. We also count patents when we're assessing uh, universities. Uh, some governments on occasion have looked to patents as one of the things they look at in terms of making funding decisions. So it's all been soft policy or through these arrangements with the university community, but it's not in legislation. Uh, and we, so we don't have to do it, but we tend to follow the U.S. lead. Right. Well, I'm a fan, needless to say, of the Canada Research Chair program, but uh, having held one for a long time, but not necessarily thinking of that chair program as one that also sparked requirements on commercialization. Is there data on the kind of revenue that that post the creation of the CRC program that we saw? You know, did we get that tripling of commercialization revenue as the government was hoping for? Uh, well, we have data from the 2000s until the government until the government basically stopped collecting this data through uh, Statistics Canada in around 2010. Um, so the Harper government severely cut back on the types of data we have, but we have data from uh, you know the early 2000s uh, until 2009, and what we we see is that uh, commercialization revenues increased, but the cost of generating those revenues rose even more. So in fact, we went from $24 million uh, in about 2001 of net benefit, of net uh, revenue, to $10.7 million uh, in 2009 because the cost way exceeded the extra, the, the little extra revenue we gain. Right. So that comes back to your one of your very first points about the costs of that pursuing a commercialization strategy. It's not free. And in fact, I mean, it's striking to think that revenues, net revenues go down rather than up, uh, at least in Canada in that first almost 10 years. 
despite the increased emphasis on commercialization. I mean, that it provides you know, compelling data as to why the system hasn't been working in Canada. And, and frankly, you, you've provided some references to why it doesn't work for the vast majority of universities in the United States. So if not commercialization, and that, as we know, is where there continues to be an emphasis, and we're, we're likely to see it come out of Ontario as well. If we're not going to make commercialization the focus, what do you propose? Well, it depends what you mean by commercialization. So this is a word that's bandied around, and often people interpret it, I think, incorrectly, as this notion of let's patent everything we have and transfer it to a Canadian firm. As I said, there were good instincts behind it. Um, but if we have a broader interpretation of commercialization as both about generating research and cutting-edge research in the university and assisting our firms, then I think we can take many different approaches. We can realize that universities are just terrible managers of intellectual property. We don't know what to patent, we don't know how to patent it, and we usually don't know who to patent it to. Anecdotally, I hear from people in tech transfer offices that the squeaky wheel that is the professor who complains, gets his or her research patented, not because it has a commercial value per se, but because they want a patent and they're not paying for it. So we, we just don't aren't good at managing this. So the alternative is just simply say that the university is not about patenting, it's about bringing people together we're really good at that. We can, we're an honest broker, so we can bring industry with community organizations, with researchers, and talk about what do we want here? What kind of knowledge do we need? A lot of this knowledge is high risk in the sense of we don't know if it's going to work. Uh, we don't know how it's going to work. We don't know how much it's going to cost. So there's a role for the university in doing the research, adding to the world's knowledge, and the industry partners can then, uh, being part of a consortium, can see opportunities for themselves to develop their own products. So they become active partners and they will see opportunities, uh, you know, some research that's come out of the university, they can say, oh, well, with that knowledge, I can now go off and develop my own molecule uh, as a treatment for this disease, or I can develop this product. Uh, in the IT space. And that's a different model of commercialization. It still emphasizes the economic benefits of research, but it doesn't tie the hands of university researchers to immediately gaining an economic benefit from what they do. And if you look historically, we've just been terrible at guessing what's going to work. If you look at when the television came out, people were saying, oh, no one's ever going to watch that. The radio is much better because you can do other things. Who, who could imagine that someone's going to sit in front of a box and watch what's happening? Uh, when, the, when the computer came out, the personal computer came out, people thought, well, no one's going to use it. Even IBM didn't think anybody was going to use it. Uh, so we've been really bad at guessing what is going to be of benefit. Why don't we just let our researchers create knowledge and let others, in, uh, firms in particular, figure out 
where the market opportunities are and they develop their own technology. Or a community organization can use the knowledge and say, look, well, there's a better way of delivering services here. We don't need a new technology. We just need to figure out how to deliver this better, maybe using IT, maybe not. So the university should generate knowledge and bring people together and their interaction, we know, uh, brings out new ideas and new opportunities. Right. I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. It's suggesting that it isn't an abandonment of commercialization. It's a different road to commercialization, one in which the university isn't premising what it needs to do on based on the number of patents that it gets and locking down that information, but rather taking a much more collaborative approach by trying to bring together other innovators, other firms, and using that research, using that knowledge in innovative ways that may ultimately lead to a more effective commercialization. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, uh, you know, some places have experimented. In fact, Canada is the leader uh, in some ways in experimenting with it. In Toronto, there's the Structural Genomics Consortium. It's headquartered in Toronto, but has uh, labs in uh, at Oxford, at the Karolinska, in, in Stockholm, at uh, in Frankfurt. Welcome to the Structural Genomics Consortium at the University of Toronto. The SGC is a not-for-profit, public-private partnership supported by pharmaceutical companies, charities, and government agencies. We support drug development through relevant basic science. We enter our findings into the public domain without restrictions or patent protection. Our open access policy means we can share our results with the world immediately and freely. Everything they do is out in the open. That is, they, there are no patents. All the data is freely available to all. And a quarter of their funding comes from industry. And industry is really interested in becoming involved because this, they're interested in the knowledge that's generated. And we know that commercial partners that are part of these collaborations are better positioned than other firms to take advantage of it. So their turnaround time from working in this consortium and then developing their own product is much shorter and direct than it is for another company that just watches it from the outside. All right. So there is a, there is a, there's still benefits from the from a private sector perspective in this kind of more open approach, and I think you often refer to it as an open science type of approach, where the, the research takes place via collaboration without patents, but with active participation of the private sector. That's right. Uh, we see it at the Montreal Neurological Institute, which went open science uh, in 2016. And they've been able to attract funding and partnerships from very large scale and smaller scale firms because they're open, because the firms realize that most of what we at universities patent is not the technology that they're bringing to market. In fact, it represents a cost to them. They have to negotiate these agreements with us. They're wasting time, you know, six months, a year, as I said before, working with the university over something that's likely not at all commercially viable. They have to go through it because that's the game that the universities have set up. But they're much happier engaging with universities where they don't have to worry about all this stuff. They enter into a simple agreement, they contribute knowledge, they get a lot more out of it uh, than they put in because uh, they, they gain from the basic knowledge that's coming out, and then they go off and develop their own product. And the SGC has success stories, uh, the Montreal Neurological Institute uh, is, is starting to gain those. 
this is a model that works. Yeah, I'd like to to focus for for just one more moment on that S, those SGC success stories because oftentimes, especially in the pharmaceutical industry sector, we've been conditioned to to believe that unless you're focused on patents and patent protection, that innovative new drugs simply don't happen. Uh, can you tell me a bit about some of the spinouts we've seen from SGC that seem to really run counter to that kind of narrative? Sure. I should point out that the SGC was actually the idea of a private sector. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline took a leadership role in setting it up and were, took a leadership role in ensuring that there were no patents there because they saw right from the beginning a benefit. But let me give you a, a more concrete example. And this is this is just one of many types of agreements uh, that the SGC has. But uh, the SGC started off looking at proteins and its three-dimensional structure. Uh, and this is important because the way that drug discovery works is you try to find a drug that fits the three-dimensional shape like a key into a lock. And so it's really important to understand it, uh, how, how these molecules fold up. And then they moved on to developing what are called probes. And these are molecules that will attach to various proteins. And if you can find a molecule that will lock onto the protein, we know it's druggable in the sense of we can find uh, some molecule that will perhaps inhibit that, that uh, protein from acting or change the way it acts. So SGC routinely enters into agreements with private sector, other institutions to develop these probes that they make freely available to the research world. One example is something called the WD repeat containing protein 5 or WDR5. It had been an uninvestigated protein and SGC wanted to spur research on this protein. So it entered into a partnership agreement with uh, the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research, which is a public institution in Ontario with uh, a mandate uh, to obviously do cancer research, but also commercialization. And under this agreement, uh, the uh, cancer, uh, the OICR, the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research, developed a probe for the WDR5 gene uh, protein. No one knew exactly what the protein did. Um, the first try did not work very well because what the SGC did, because it's got this international network, it said to other researchers, can you just test out this probe and see if it's really as effective as we think? Turned out it wasn't. Uh, so they had a leading researcher uh, who was willing to participate because no one was getting patents. This was helping academia, helping knowledge growth. And so the OICR redid their probe and came out with a very high performing probe. The SGC and the OICR made this probe freely available. There were researchers in Australia U.S. and Austria who took up the probe uh, and discovered links between the, the protein and different types of uh, cancer, leukemia, breast cancer, and neuroblastoma, and published the results. So the researchers were interested in getting into high impact factor journals. That's the currency of researchers. And so by getting this free probe, they were able to say, look, this was an unknown area we can do this research rapidly and get a high impact journal, and each one of them did. 
because the OICR had been involved with this open project, they knew what was happening. They were, you know, they had not in-house knowledge about how this probe was built. They knew about the WDR5 protein. They already had staff trained on it. And so they were quickly able to take this knowledge and develop a separate molecule that they then patented. So the OICR then took this public knowledge available to everyone in the world and uh, developed a new, uh, new drug that they took uh, through some preclinical trials and proved that it was effective in the leukemia field. So much so uh, that Celgene, a very large uh, company, uh, approached them and agreed to pay $40 million up front for the right to use the drug. The patent stays with the OICR, but Celgene has the commercialization rights. And up to a billion dollars if the drug makes it all the way to approval. In the meantime, the research is being conducted in Ontario. So more Ontario researchers are being funded. We're developing more of this knowledge about how this uh, protein works. And so we're leaving a legacy behind. So here's an example of a commercialization route that did not involve the university taking a patent, but making it open and converting it into uh, a commercial success. Uh, the SGC has other models, though, that don't even involve patenting. They've set up a company called M4K uh, Pharma, which is medicines for kids, um, and M4ND, which is uh, for, for neurological diseases. And here, everything is done in the open. There are no patents. But in, in the healthcare, in the drug space, there's an opportunity to get data exclusivity when you file an application to the FDA in the United States, Health Canada in, uh, uh, in Canada, for drug approval. Uh, the data that you submitted cannot be used to allow another company uh, to get market approval. They would have to do the research themselves. And so M4K Pharma is using this as a uh, as a way to commercialize it so they've got charities that are interested in the fundamental diseases they're going after and uh, it, at the very least they're going to get knowledge gain and if there happens to be an opportunity that comes out of this then there's a commercialization route again no one else is restricted from developing their own drugs all the data is out there uh, but we see that there's a benefit to being part of the partnership. You're just more nimble and able to commercialize faster. So there's an advantage to participate, but we're not blocking anybody else who isn't interested in participating from following their own research and commercialization uh, routes. I mean, that's a really remarkable set of stories to, to highlight how this has, in fact, worked. It's not just a theory. It's, in fact, in practice we see an alternative route not dependent upon a patenting model that actually leads in many ways to more innovation and actually more commercialization opportunities. You know, what's it going to take, do you think, to to see this proliferate more broadly, especially at a time when governments look at the investments they make in research in universities and for so long their knee-jerk reaction has been we need more we need more patents. Well, I'm somewhat hopeful that the Commission in Ontario will uh, acknowledge this conundrum and actually support 
experimentation, because that's what we really need. These are this one model I gave you of open science. There are other models of open science. There are probably other models. And we need experimentation. I, you know, some of the people on the uh, on, on the commission are open to these ideas, including and Jim Balsilli, who well understands that universities have done a poor job. I mean, they, you know, Jim and uh, the government uh, are upset that we're commercializing or universities are commercializing knowledge for the benefit of foreign firms. So if we're going to get patents, let's not transfer or data exclusively, let's not just transfer them to, you know, the Facebooks of the world, let's at least make it go to Canadians. Uh, but at the same time, they recognize that universities are poor managers of, um, uh, of patents. And so I think we're going to see, I'm hopeful that we'll see some experimentation. We've seen some signs from Canada's chief scientist that uh, open science is something that she's interested in. In fact, Environment Canada is the lead uh, department in the government on the open government file, which includes open science. What we're hoping for is that the funding agencies, such as uh, Canadian, Institute, Canadian Institutes for Health Research, uh, their equivalents in engineering and social science, start to experiment with open science by having open science calls. Uh, that is, research grants aimed at open science that meet some minimum criteria, open data, open publication, no patents. We've seen an example of this from the Wellcome Trust, one of the largest uh, international funders of health research. They've been experimenting with open science. CZI, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, is also uh, interested in open science. So what we're hoping for is that the funders start putting their money into open science experimentation. When the universities see that there's money available to do open science, they will do it. Doesn't matter whether they believe in it or not. The way universities count whether they're doing well is how much money they're bringing in. So if they can bring money in by open science, they will. Uh, I actually think universities are gonna be the most difficult to change, as, uh, as you've mentioned, a long history of a belief in this failed system. It's only by enticing them to try something different by publicizing the stories of the SGC and the MNI and other places that are interested that will start to see a change. Uh, and if Canada doesn't do it, other countries will. The UK, in fact, funded my research on open science. I have no Canadian funding. It comes from, uh, or I, I now do, but I didn't at the time, uh, because they think open science is a way for them to increase scientific productivity and commercialization in the UK. Brazilian institutions are approaching us and asking about how they can implement it. We know the Netherlands is interested in this. Uh, your colleague Jeremy De Beer, working in Africa, uh, is seeing an, a desire for openness and sharing on fair terms. We're talking to uh, patient groups and they're interested. So we can increase trust in science if we all come together and say, look, this is a public service creating knowledge, but it's not done at the expense of commercialization. It actually assists those who are willing partners. Right. And it, it's amazing to hear the, just the sheer number of 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 organizations and countries that are now focusing on this issue and, and somewhat ironic that 
it feels as if we have to get the Canadian institutions kind of pull them along to, to come into that same space. Richard, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, it's been a great pleasure, uh, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at M. Geist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.